You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he wonders, wonders, wonders who, who, who wrote the Book of Love. It's Mr. <laughs> Jeff McLodge. I, I wonder if that book was self-published. <laughs> What's up? How are you doing? How you ding? I'm, I'm good. I had the, the funniest experience at the gym this week. I think all of life's best experiences happen at the gym, or at least the funniest ones. It's a well that we can draw from often for funny things. I don't know who their music comes in through, which service they use, but they use some service. Okay. So pretty much every day when I go, the day on the days that I go, I hear the same four or five songs, sometimes in slightly mixed around order. At the time, I'm either getting ready to go into the gym to do things or getting ready to take a shower and then put my clothes on and leave the gym. So it's usually like Foxy Lady by Jimi Hendrix, Youth of Today that we had for our worst song ever, and uh, some cover of White Snake sung by a woman, but it sounds exactly like White Snake, only <laughs> if it was sung by Alvin from Alvin and the Chipmunks. My old gym, I don't know who the hell was in charge, but they were obsessed with 311 and Eminem. <laughs> like that's ever a thing yeah so like it goes like three or four weeks at a time where it's always the same and then it changes them all yeah. and this time it changed them all and it i was coming out of the shower and i'm listening to shout it out loud one of my favorite kiss songs right yes great song one of the best tracks and i'm like singing great along live song. great live great live song. song i'm singing along with it having a great time and that song ends and the next song starts and now there's like 20 people in the locker rooms there's three or four guys just on the other side of the lockers who are all talking about their workouts they're like yeah. meatheads they're all there all the time and this is what i hear shot to the heart and you're to blame you gave love a bad name and i'm like oh you can't follow up shout it out loud with this song this song's terrible bon jovi right yeah. and i hear one of those guys go oh man this song slaps and <laughs> i thought no there's no f- way that a 25 year old meathead is going to be rocking out to Bon Jovi in the gym bathroom and the dude and his friends sang along with the whole I sat in the gym and listened to them sing along to the whole song because I couldn't believe it I thought I had died at the gym again <laughs> with the bad backing vocals like did they God, split yeah, it, it was, up it was awesome it was the worst thing I've ever heard I should have recorded it on my phone it was so funny did they split it up like one guy does like the, the lead the other two go bad day they were trading it off so oh. it was wicked funny like it was I if there's a security camera tape of it I hope to God they played it at their Christmas party because it was so <laughs> funny it was so funny to listen to them like crooning out this song from like 1987, right? Which even then was on the less sort of rocky side of hard rock. Yeah. It was wicked funny. And to hear somebody go, oh man, this song slaps and it not be an ironic comment as right, evidenced right, right. by the fact that they all sang along with it, man, it made my whole day. I can just picture you like 
peering out from behind like the lockers, just like almost cartoonish, like just the eyeballs kind of come around like, who the f*** is saying this? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I was doing. I was I had my two fingers on my jugular vein. I'm like, there is a heartbeat there, so I have probably <laughs> haven't died. And then I was looking at my defibrillator to see if the LED light was showing through my skin. And I'm like, no, I'm still alive, man. I'm I'm up and I didn't die. So this is this is the funniest thing. And I sat there very quietly and enjoyed this like three and a half minutes of four muscle bound meathead dudes singing along to "You Give Love a Bad Name." I'm sure even if you asked Bon Jovi, hey, what do you think the odds are of this happening? He'd say no, zero. I would never bet on that. You know, your temper just going up there. Listen, Aiden, Raiden, and Jaden. This song sucks. This song sucked 35 years ago. I could not get my far enough away from this song when I was your age. And you're going to tell me it slaps? I'll tell you what slaps. I slap. There you go. <laughs> right? I was, I should have said Where were you when Shout It Out Loud was on, huh? Yeah. Where's my backup vocals for that song? Because I sang to that one. But it was so funny. And it made, again, it made me appreciate the people that I don't talk to when I go to the gym because they're an inevitable sen- a source of, of hilarity for me. All right. Before we get uh, on with the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well received trivia question. Hey, speaking of music that slaps, Jeff. <laughs> so, you know, you and I are both huge fans of baseball. Actually, we're not, but we talk about it a lot. A staple at any baseball game is the organ with the and, and whatnot. In 1941 is when this tradition started with the organ at the baseball games. Which baseball team was the first team to have said organ at their game? What was the first baseball team to use an organ at a baseball game? Uh-huh. All right. Uh... Nah, I'm you gonna can hold give my... me an answer at the end of the show, Jeff. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold my answer to the end of the show, and then I'm gonna tell you what I think it is. All right. So, all right. So this is the week beginning June the twentieth, and I think it is your turn to start. It is indeed my turn to start. June twentieth, nineteen seventy five, or as I like to call it, the day in the year that my mom stopped going into the water at the beach. Jaws, based on the book by Peter Benchley, directed by Steven Spielberg, his first monster blockbuster hit is released. Stars Roy Scheider and. Elaine Gary and young Richard Dreyfus and a big mechanical shark Shot named Bruce off the coast of Massachusetts, uh, uh, right off of Martha's Vineyard, uh, standing in for Amity Island and was the first like it wasn't a big budget horror film, but it was a fantastic monster movie in that you didn't see the shark until the very end because it kept breaking during production. I don't think it started out as a big budget horror film, but it ended up being one. Yeah, <laughs> the shark sank again. It's down at the bottom of Sound Pig's Reef. Ah. Uh. Um, it's going to be thousands of dollars to get that thing up here again. Ultimately, all the technical problems they had with the mechanical shark worked in the film's favor. The less it was on screen, the more tense the movie is. I was just about to say, in horror movies now, going forward, they refer to that as the Jaws model. Don't show the monster. Think about Cloverfield. You didn't see the monster for the whole movie. Yes, it ruined Cloverfield for me, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe that's not the best it's, example. That was a monster movie. There was supposed to be a monster in it. Yep. So, uh, well, uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Four. I'm one of those people that can t- like just pick apart Friday the Thirteenth movies for their artistic integrity. And Friday the Thirteenth right. Part Four falls in that category where they use the Jaws model. You barely see Jason's mask through most yeah. of the first you know two acts. Yeah. Did you know that you could edit out the Jason scenes just from that film? It's like. I think it's six and a half minutes of film footage altogether. And what you have left over is the John Candy movie, The Great Outdoors. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're entirely wrong. 
At any rate, my mom saw Jaws most of the way through in the cinema, ran screaming from the movie theater, refused to watch the rest of the film, and would never go into the ocean past her knees after Jaws. And she's somebody who grew up on the beach. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was a little boy when this came out. I did not see Jaws or Jaws 2 in the theater. I remember Jaws 2 coming out and the line just being incredible. I did see Jaws 3 in the theater, much to my <laughs> humiliation. The 3D one? Yeah, it was the 3D Jaws one. Jaws 3 3D? Yeah. I saw that one in the cinema and I saw the best of all the Jaws movies because it's the most fun. Jaws the Revenge in the cinema. I saw that in the movies. I was the only person in the cinema. <laughs> of all the Jaws movies, that's the one I've watched the, mo- the most. It's got like 20 repeat watches in my in my repertoire of films. Jaws the Revenge is not only not entertaining, it's not a good film. It is still absolutely hilarious to watch. Possibly. That's the movie that we found out that sharks roar like a lion. Yes, and you can kill one by ramming it with a very dull piece of wood attached to the front of a boat. Yeah, they just explode. They're funny. Yes, they're awesome. <laughs> And uh, apparently um, Mario Van Peebles can get eaten by a shark and yet still be on the boat to finish the film. <laughs> That's why they hired him. Moving on to June the 21st, 1982, uh, your friend and mine, John Hinckley Jr. is found not guilty by reason of insanity. I'm sure the Jodie Foster fan club sent a bunch of support letters into the court. So yeah, your friend and mine here, uh, John Hinckley, he is the young man who decided to be the best way to get a girl is to shoot the president. So uh, he had shot Ronald Reagan and James Brady in an attempt to impress Jodie Foster. So spoiler alert for those of you who are not familiar with this. It didn't work. No, uh, Jodie Foster is not really into dudes. Uh, so that was working against him. Also, Hinckley had developed an obsession with Foster after seeing her in Taxi Driver, at which time she was like 14. John, John, we need to talk. Well, he's been out since 2016. They declared him, I don't know if they still like declare someone sane, but he was released from custody from his hold in 2016 and is now in the process of touring as a band? (laughs) Uh, yeah, Yeah, sort of. I know he was looking to be in a band. Would you answer that Craigslist? I wouldn't. <laughs> no, no. It's a shame they couldn't put him together with a bunch of other like guys who are sort of have similar past, like you know, Gacy on bass and uh, Eileen Warnos is the backup singer. <laughs> what a lovely singing voice that bet she has. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he got released from custody as he is no longer considered a threat to himself or others. Quote unquote. He lives with his mom in Williamsburg. Now, he may be out, but it's not with conditions, okay? He cannot he cannot drink alcohol. He cannot possess any firearms or ammunition, even, like, memorabilia stuff. Cannot contact Reagan's family, Brady's family, Jodie Foster, Jodie Foster's family, or her agent. Oh. Yep. Cannot watch any violent movies, television, or music. Jeez. Or listen, listen to violent music. So, yep. So, no ICP for you there, Johnny. <laughs> Man, I, I'm sure that when he read that list of conditions, he's like, why do you, why, don't even let me out then. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it gets, Might as well just stay here. It gets worse. No speaking to the press. No visiting present or past homes of any of the people involved. No visiting the graves of any of the people involved. Jeez. Yep. That's pretty, uh, it's like home confinement at that point. And uh, cannot delete his browser's history on his uh, computer. Well, yeah, that's 
That's probably important. I, I wonder what what sort of music he's he's made. I'll have to go. I have to YouTube and see if there's like him singing or playing an instrument or something because I had no idea he was musical. I mean, what else are you gonna do? You know. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder what his first record album would be called. Probably called like Jay Foster. The single, <laughs> All for Jody. Hey guys, I got a new song. It's called Jody Foster. I'll call this one Uber Driver, but Uber is in quotes. Hey guys, I got another new song. Oh, let me guess. It's called Jody Foster. <laughs> no. No, this one's called Tatum O'Neill. Why? <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to the 22nd. What do we got? June 22nd, 1978, the first moon of the dwarf planet Pluto is discovered and named Sharon. Not Sharon like, Sharon! <laughs> but Sharon, C-H-A-R-O-N. Or, yeah, sometimes called Charon or, yeah. Charon. Uh, Car- or Charon. In, I believe that's Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Charon is the, the the ferryman that brings you across the river yes, sticks. across the river sticks. Yep. Uh into Hades, yeah. Not ironically, subsequent moons have been discovered mm-hmm. since 1978, and all of them, you'll notice a theme, Bill, mm-hmm. because they're called Styx, as in the same as the band or the river, yep. Nyx, Kerberos, and Hydra, so all uh, either terrible places and or monsters from Greek mythology. Right, and Pluto is actually the Roman god that is... Like, the con- like Roman and Greek mythology are basically the same thing with different names. So Pluto is the counterpart to Hades. So he's, yes. he's the, the god of the underworld over in Roman mythology. So I'm really surprised that the religious right haven't had some... Maybe that's why Pluto is no longer a planet. Just the, the religious right influence in this country. I don't know. It was like... I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson that got it demoted. He was the impetus behind that based on its size. Oh, yes. I don't. I don't think the religious light had much to do it. I'm sure. Oh, sure, they take credit for it though. I'm sure they will, and they're like, "Well, give all the hell names to that little planet." Then that's where their influence ends. Sure. So let's get this straight. Mickey Mouse's dog is named after a devil figure. That's kind of awesome. Actually, did you know that uh, John Adams, the second president of the United States, he had a dog named Satan. No. So there's a theme going here, yeah. <laughs> Did you know that Mickey and Minnie Mouse got divorced? <laughs> oh, really? Why is that? <laughs> well, at first they originally announced in the papers that Minnie had gone insane. But Mickey clarified that she was just fucking goofy. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on to the 23rd. June the 23rd, 1846. The saxophone is invented by Adolf Sax. Uh, so, anticlimactic. Yeah, exactly. Mr. Sax uh, invented the saxophone. I'm sure the sousaphone was invented by some Portuguese dude somewhere. <laughs> Billy, Billy Sousa. Yeah. Uh, saxophone. I love the sound of saxophone, but that's like one instrument I don't think I could ever. Tr- I don't even want to try it because they're expensive. You know, I bought a little ukulele to, to futz around with during the uh, the pandemic, and I think I spent like $50 on it, and that was a lot of money to spend on something that I know I'm not going to be good at. It's interesting that I didn't realize that you were a saxophone fan, so does, does that mean we'll never be able to put Kenny G into the worst song ever category here? Uh, we'll talk about that. No. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, I mean, saxophone gets used a lot in a lot of Pink Floyd songs. I mean, think about, you know, Money has that amazing sax solo. The song The Dogs of War, which isn't necessarily my favorite Pink Floyd song, but that sax solo is a mother. Yeah, it's good. Saxophone got, I think, overused in the 1980s. It became part of every overproduced ensemble band. So, like, if you listen to the heartbeat by, what the hell's his name? Don Johnson from the worst Don song jo- ever. Yeah, Don Johnson Harvey. There's a saxophone in that bad boy. Same thing with the return of Bruno, our friend, and Bruce Willis. Another worst song ever, yeah. Among others, not to mention like Rod Stewart is half saxophone at this point by the time he's recording <laughs> all of the cover songs on that album that you sent he's me. He's got reeds going down his arm, yeah. I think it all comes down to that scene from Lost Boys. I think that's what happened. It, it may very well be. Yep. All right, let's go on to the 24th. June 24th, 1902, the Target Corporation is founded by a businessman named George Dayton, but the original name of the store isn't Target, it's Goodfellows Dry Goods, and it's, it originally opens in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, what'd you say, 1902? 1902. So it's probably like 1903 whenever somebody said, I call it Target. <laughs> Target, get it? <laughs> yes, uh, get it. Uh, yes, uh, that always irritated me. It still does uh, when people do that. I don't know why. You don't know why it irritates you or you don't know why I don't people know. do it? I, well, no, it's a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. The first time somebody said that and I and I had no idea what they were talking about because... Target didn't come to New Hampshire until, like, the late 1990s. There weren't any around. Right. We had Kmarts, and we had Ameses, and we had Caldors, and we had other things, but there was no Target. Yep. So I was working at a place, and one of the people that worked with me would go on lunch and go shopping, and she's like, oh, is it Target? And I was like, oh, is that a French place? She's like, no. (laughs) And I was like, well, okay. And she says, Target. I'm like, Target what? She's like, Target, the department store. I'm like, Target is a what? I don't even know what that is. And she's like, well, it's like a thinking man's Walmart. The first time that I saw a Target, I was in Las Vegas. It was 1997. And my friend Jim had lived in Louisiana for some time prior to that. Now, Louisiana, every, you know, there's a very, very large French population. A lot of the names that we say up here in New England, like Benoit, and Lavoie, you know, all those last names, they're pronounced way different down there, like Benoit and Lavoie. Right. My friend Jim, I thought he's the one that made up the joke because he had said Target because he lived in Louisiana and everything is pronounced French down there, so we just started calling it Target. So he said that joke to me in 1997. I was like, ha, 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 that's so funny. And then, like, the rest of the world said it. I was like, oh, you're, okay, never mind. It's not funny anymore. It's not funny anymore. This stopped being funny. Uh, Target is, uh, for those of you who are ever on Jeopardy and find yourself looking at the question, which is, where does Jeff buy his stupid work clothes? Uh, (laughs) The answer is Target for 500, Alex. Uh, That's where, because I had to go buy work clothes and returning to the office thing is going on. And I had to, like, actually go buy clothes that are suitable for being in public again. (laughs) And that was where I went to get them. Usually it looks like they've had like a Tasmanian devil fight in the men's section at the two that are near me. Yep. Depending on which day I go. And I happened to go there on a day where they must have had the cleanup crew come through an hour before I got there because only half of the racks were tipped over. And all the cleaning products were gone. (laughs) All all the cleaning products were gone, yes. All right. Uh, Moving on. June the 25th, 1630. Just a few years ago. uh, The Fork... 
is introduced to American dining by Governor Winthrop. Oh. Oh. So. Yeah, prior to that, people just shoveled stuff into their mouth with their hands. All right. Yeah. I, I like, they must have been either eating with their hands or like with a big wooden spoon. Like, oh, it's really hard to eat these beans, Governor Winthrop. I want, did he, he didn't invent it. He must have brought it back from the civilized places over in Europe, right? He must have come back and been like, not only do I bring money. But I also bring this! And he holds up a fork, and he's like, it's... I think what happened is, he came back from Europe with a big plate of spaghetti. <laughs> and he says, I bring you spaghetti! And they were like, the f*** are we supposed to do with this? Ah! Uh-huh. <laughs> Boy, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I guess it has to come from someplace. You know, that's how fads happen. Right. You know? Uh, there was that commercial there maybe a couple of months ago with Larry David, and they were showing like all the inventions that people didn't get on board with, and one of them was the fork. And he like holds up his hands. And he's like, "I got ten forks right here." <laughs> I, I'm sure that you know the conversation around that that dinner was something like, "Well, I'm, it must have been one. It must have been messy because you got to learn how to you know not eat like a Neanderthal the yep. first time you have one of those." Like I remember my dad saying that like. You hold that fork like you're gonna get con- like you're condemned. Yeah, my father used to say it's a fork, it's not a pencil. Yeah, right. It's a, yeah, exactly. What? Yeah, what did I raise you in a zoo? You know. Um, but I'm sure they were all sitting around, you know, because it's the governor, so it's not like he's living in a shack. Right. And they've got dinner served, and there's you know probably ham and turkey and stuff, and they've got knives that are very sharp and wooden spoons that are not and there's this pointy thing that they're stabbing themselves in the face with until they learn how not to do that when they put the food in their mouth and the governor goes so Hanrahan <laughs> what do you have what, what's on what's on tap for tomorrow after you eat this delicious meal using your new fork and he says well we're gonna burn a lot of witches governor <laughs> that's, that's what we're gonna be doing tomorrow why you, you wanna come we're gonna be using the wooden spoons as a pyre seeing as we don't need them anymore we're be... right we're gonna use them as kindling alright what do we got for the 26th? June 26, 2018, the Hello Kitty bullet train is unveiled by the West Japanese Railway. That must be adorable. Hello Kitty. Yes. It, I, as I believe that, you know, it probably costs three times as much as riding on any other train or non Hello Kitty train. But you know what? It doesn't matter because you're going to pay it anyway. Just like anybody else who's ever walked into a Sanrio store with like a kid next to them. How much is that pencil? Eight fifty for one pencil? Right, give me two. Here's seventeen dollars. <laughs> because you're gonna buy it anyway. Because Hello Kitty's is just one of those things, and they'll also brand anything. So, uh, so it's created created by Yuko Shimizu, and I remember it was probably about ten years ago. Now, I mean, life just goes by so fast on the internet. But I remember, like, he came out and said that Hello Kitty was not a cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? It, it, Peter it, Chris it, is not a cat either. He's the drummer from Kiss. Stop being <laughs> difficult. <laughs> what I like is that even though its name is Kitty. And it looks exactly like a cat. <laughs> but uh, I'm not kidding when I say they'll brand anything. There used to be a Sanrio store that I would save my spare pennies, dollars, and quarters for to take Meg to when she was very little. And we would go in and buy like a sticker book for $10 or something. And I never complained because it, she really enjoyed it. She thought it was cute. I thought they were cute. It was a fun thing to do. They literally sold anything that had a Hello Kitty logo on there. I saw there there was a toaster. That's not unusual. Right. 
Thermos, par for the course. Close, you got to expect that. Crosscut Shredder. A what now? What? The, the, the Hello, Hello, Hello Kitty Crosscut Shredder. And I asked the lady, like, does it shred the paper into little Hello Kitty shaped confetti? She said, no. It just has a Hello Kitty sticker on the bin. So and when I you're said, busy destroying government documents okay. for safety purposes, you can look adorable <laughs> doing it. Right. <laughs> so, uh, Hello Kitty Crosscut Shredder. They, I'm sure that there's also like a Hello Kitty emergency defibrillator kit. And if not, there should certainly be a Hello Kitty dog neutering surgical table. So, I, I don't know. that They're, they're friggin' everywhere. It's, it's great. And I think that as far as branding goes, that, that they are brilliant and I love them for it. So, sign me up for the train. And I know, I know there is. There is actually a Kiss Hello Kitty, like, cross-marketing thing. Oh, you know yeah, it. No, there, there is. I'm not even making I can, that I up. can already hear Gene Simmons. Yeah. Oh. I, I know, but I, what I want to know is, like, did Gene Simmons go to them or did they go to Gene Simmons? Because they're, like, effectively the exact same entity, just on different edges of the I world. I think they just appeared to one another like the force. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the celebrity birthdays. June the 20th, 1967, the very lovely and very beautiful and very won't leave me alone at the beginning of movies whenever I go to see him at AMC now, Nicole Kidman. Ah, I just saw her as the mother in The Northman, which was great. Oh, she was in that, yeah. And she was great in that. Yeah, like, you know how Maria Menudo's doesn't leave you alone whenever you're pumping gas? That's how Nicole Kidman is. The local movie theater is an AMC chain, and they, like... They have a commercial for themselves, and they run it. It's Nicole Kidman doing the thing. Uh, okay. Nicole Kidman is, like, eternally beautiful. I mean, here she is, you know, deep into her 50s now. Just as beautiful now as she was back when she did... I forget which Batman she was in. I think she was in Batman Returns. No, she was in Batman Fall River or whatever. It is. <laughs> Batman, Batman Fall River. Batman-y. <laughs> <laughs> Um, she was in, yeah, she was in Batman Forever. Yep. She was married to Tom Cruise for, like, seven years? Yeah, my God. She must be just sitting at home going, whoa, I dodged that bullet. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the reason she looks so good is that Tom Cruise years, married to Tom Cruise years, is like, it's like eight normal years to one Tom it's Cruise like a year. dog years. Yeah, yeah. so she, she ages more slowly or something because of it. Yeah, but, well, uh, then again, he doesn't age either. They must have made, like, a deal with, like, right. Zenu or whatever that god is. <laughs> All right, June the 21st. Who do we got? June 21st, 1944, singer-songwriter and leader of the Kinks, Ray Davies is born. Um, and boxing champion. <laughs> possibly uh, best known in the United States for Lola and the covers that Van Halen did of You Really Got Me. Yeah, probably best known in the United States for that yeah. riff. Ba-na-na-na-na. Yep. which is at least four or five of their songs it is yes and that was that was his brother that was dave davies uh but yep. he wrote really great songs like waterloo sunset the lola versus the power man album is fantastic he did that great village green preservation society album and all the way up through state of confusion that i remember the from the 80s where the come dancing single came from which right uh, they had is, another really cool song called predictable around that same time too yeah yep uh, paranoia self-destroy so like all kinds of really good stuff and they've they've run the gamut between sort of british invasion type rock and roll which is where they kind of started through more weird pastoral stuff into the 1970s 
and then more harder rock in the 70s it was stripped down like early rolling stones early 70s rolling stones like they've been out there just doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it since i know uh, ray davies has written a couple of uh, musicals one around come dancing mm-hmm. uh, a song written for his sister and still they still play yeah they, they never broke up not for not trying because <laughs> ray and Dave davies like i alluded to before boxing champion of the world over right. there yeah, those guys got into like vicious fights. Yeah, Legendary. they were they were the Liam and Noel Gallagher of Oasis. Thirty five years before those guys were born. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people like to compare Oasis to the Beatles, but it's like ah, I don't know, man. The Kinks, I think. I, I don't think you have to go much further than that. Well, I think it's front of the stage is like the Beatles, backstage is like the Kinks. That's probably how it breaks. All right, so uh, moving on to June the twenty second, nineteen forty nine. Uh, I, I can't stop laughing because I, I have such an embarrassing story here. Actress Lindsay Wagner, who will probably best be known as playing the bionic woman. Jamie Summers. Yep. The Jamie Summers, the female counterpart to the $6 million man. Steve Austin, not the uh, ass-kicking son of a bitch from wrestling. The original Steve Austin, uh, played by Lee Majors. So... I go to a lot of these uh, conventions and there's always like a lot of celebrities doing autographs and stuff like that. And they actually had Lindsey Wagner and Lee Majors side by side doing autographs, which is really cool. Now, one of my favorite things to do whenever I go to these conventions is to pick out a really obscure thing that the person is not known for and right. and mentioning to that to them. Yeah. So as I walked by Lindsay Wagner, I just kind of leaned in and I said, I loved you as Lizzie Borden. And she looked me right in the eyes and said, I never played Lizzie Borden. <laughs> and I'm like, weren't you in that Lizzie Borden movie? And she's like, no, I've never played Lizzie Borden. And the guy that was like handling her money, like she's like really confused. She doesn't know what I'm talking about. Because right. then I was like almost trying to convince her that she did play Lizzie Wooden. <laughs> you don't remember it? it was an axe movie? Yeah, Forty Wax. Yeah, let me give away the ending, right? And the guy goes, so he goes, I think he thinks you're Elizabeth Montgomery. I go, no, I don't think she's Elizabeth Montgomery, but you're right. It was Elizabeth <laughs> Montgomery in that Lizzie Borden movie, now that you mention it. So what was the follow-up? I loved you in that soap commercial. No, like, I, I think, I go, I think that's so guess what? I loved Elizabeth Montgomery in that <laughs> Lizzie Borden movie and walked away. <laughs> so... <laughs> All right, so what do we have for the 23rd? June 23rd, 1972, American actress Selma Blair, who was a character on Two and a Half Men for a couple of years and played Hellboy's love interest in the first Hellboy film. She wasn't in the second one that I can remember. Then again, I've only seen the second one once. She was in Cruel Intentions and got her start making those sort of like way more dark drama style teen, late teen movies until she, she moved into comedy. Yeah, she's done a lot, a lot of stuff. And like you just said, she was in Cruel Intentions with Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, so that movie came out like, you know, 23 years ago. They're still like super, super, super good friends. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Selma Blair came, you know, became sick uh, some years ago. She has uh, multiple, she has MS, multiple sclerosis. You know, so that kind of messes with your motor skills and, and stuff. And um, and Sarah Michelle Gellar still visits with her often, 
and and helps her out with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's great. It's great to to have that that kind of support system when you have a, a chronic illness. She's a great actress, and even when she was doing like comedy on Two and a Half Men, she was funny. You know, I hope she's able to now. She's sort of the, become like the face of multiple sclerosis. I hope she's able to raise awareness and money so that a cure can be found. Says, love to see her back at you know sort of her full ability to act and, and be in film. Sure. Uh, moving on, June twenty fourth, nineteen nineteen. Character actor Al Molinaro, who everybody would know as Al from Happy Days. I almost called him Arnold when you were. In, I was like Arnold, and I'm like, no, Arnold was Pat Morita, right? But uh, yeah, he came in. He came in <clears throat> after Pat Morita left Happy Days and took over the drive-in. Yep. Whenever Pat Morita left, I mean, I remember, you know, it, it was kind of like leaving a big hole behind. Everyone was like, oh, you know, what's Happy Days going to be like without without Arnold? And then uh, Al took it over, and it was a completely different character, yet just as lovable. Yeah, he, he definitely made an impact on that show and added to the ensemble quality of the cast, I think, as well. Right, he certainly got more screen time than Ben Pat Morita did in the seasons that he was on, and they built some storylines around Al. Right. It just, he always used to go, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember going back and watching reruns of The Odd Couple, you know, with my father, because he used to like that show, and we'd watch reruns and syndication, and then Al was the the policeman on that show. And it was just really hard to see Al, the guy that ran the drive-in on Happy Days, and he's a policeman on that show. It's just, yeah, my, my little brain couldn't make sense out of it. All right, next up. Uh, June 25th, 1947, 1970s superstar TV character actor and... I guess you face kind of a generation, at least for a little while. Jimmy Walker became the focal character on the show Good Times after the second season and remained as the, the focal character right through to the to the last season where he had gone off and disappeared into sort of moderate obscurity. Cause he didn't do a lot of stuff after he did Good Times. No, not really. It was a couple of movie roles here and there. Yeah, I, th- like, I think Good Times was supposed to originally center around the father. It was, yeah. Yeah, and then J.J. became such a popular character. I think that's actually the reason why the father left the series. Yep, it is, and it's the reason that ultimately uh, the mother did as well, but they got her to come back Mm -hmm. when J.J., Jimmy Walker, left or was written off the show. He was still a good character actor. He showed up on stuff like Love Boat, you know, all the sort of weird 70s things that we've talked about before. I'm sure Fantasy Island had an episode or two he was on there. The last thing I remember seeing him in was this, like, straight-to-VHS tape movie with Mark Hamill in it called The Giver, and he played a henchman to... A henchman monster to the main monster, and I was like, that's... So, I think it may have actually been at the same convention as my Lindsay Wagner debacle, but but I met uh, Jimmy Walker as well, and I I just went up to him, and I really didn't have a lot to say to him, and nothing stupid anyway. Like, uh, I, I loved you in that movie with Luke Skywalker. Um, <laughs> I loved you in Lizzie Borden. <laughs> yeah. I loved you in Corvette Summer. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, I just I went up to him and I, I, you know, stuck my hand out for a handshake and I said, "This is back in the days when you could shake hands," and I said, uh, "I go, I just love meeting legends, and you are certainly a legend." 
and he just smiled and nodded his head. Didn't say two words. No, thank you. Hello, goodbye. F you go to hell. Nothing. He just <laughs> he just shook my hand and smiled, and that was it. He didn't say anything. <laughs> There's a DJ on Sounds of the '70s satellite radio that I listen to, and his DJ name is JJ Walker. So that's a combination of like JJ Evans from Good Times and Jimmy Walker from the guy that played JJ Evans on Good Times. And I have no idea what this person looks like, but every time he talks, my, the face that I attach to this guy's voice, which is absolutely nothing like Jimmy Walker's voice at all, is that of, of Jimmy Walker. So it's really strange to listen to him in my car telling me that, like, you know, Tony Orlando and Don was the song that we just listened to. And it's not it's not his voice, but it's his face in my mind is telling me, like, Tony Orlando and Don, they had a lot of hits in 1974. All right, and wrapping up the birthdays on June 26, 1904, an actor big in his day, all, all sadly forgotten, though, I think, uh, in, in modern generations, a guy by the name of Peter Lorre. Yeah, yeah fantastic uh, dramatic actor and found his way into Hollywood, did like hard straight drama, was one of the people who worked in Germany for Fritz Lang. He was in M. He played the the murderer in M and was fantastic in that film. And Right, and that is the prototype for most modern slasher movies, isn't it? Uh, not slasher movies, but detective stories, like cop okay. procedurals. That's really where that movie is a okay. lot like those. Was it had a had a big role, even though it was short screen time in Casablanca. He worked alongside Bogart in a couple of films, like The Maltese Falcon. Yeah. And then later found himself doing more goofy stuff. He did like The Hands of Orlac, but he did some other horror stuff like The Black Cat. And the Beast with the Five Fingers, and eventually, as a as you described Lee Majors earlier, a shell of his former self, he was sort of a shell of his former self, making all of these like American International Pictures, Poe adaptation, sort of schlocky bad horror movies with Vincent Price, like The Raven and The Terror. He wasn't in The Terror, but he was in The Raven and a couple of other ones. See and now then, that see that never really made a lot of sense to me. Like the the monster serials. You know, Count Chocula is very obviously Bela Lugosi. Frankenstein is very obviously Boris Karloff. And it always confused me that Boo Berry had the voice of Peter Lorre. I was like, why is a guy from Casablanca doing it? But now that you're saying it, he did all those uh, kind of crappy horror movies. Yeah, he did those, he did those yeah. like late 50s and into the 60s when his health was in decline and he was like a rampaging alcoholic and... He made a bunch of like lousy monster films. Sure, he's still good in them, and, but I, I say lousy in that they they cost like the, the equivalent of like buying four bags of Doritos instead of eight. So I mean that's because they're movies. If they were music, they would just be the worst song ever. All right, young Jeff, what's in our cannon to shoot uh, to the moon? Oh yeah. All right, so. Uh, I have made it no surprise to anyone that I'm not a fan of late 90s, early 2000s alternative rock. I'm not a fan of 90s rock, really, to begin with. But especially as we were getting to that weird, that transitory period where grunge had become so mainstream that it was just what you heard on rock and roll stations mm -hmm. and alternative stations that had, had sort of made their living on Bush and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and... Pick the other names that you want from that uh, Allison Chains and stuff. Soul Asylum, right? Soul Asylum, right? Whatever. All those guys, 
they didn't have stuff to play, so they sort of switched back into putting on stuff that was more esoteric and strange. That was the first home where rap rock started to get a foothold, where sort of weird, dancey pop from Europe started to get a hold, where guys who had transitioned out of one genre into another, like Everlast, who was in Ice T's Rhyme Syndicate and House of Pain, and then as a solo guy with a guitar that I'm not sure he knew how to play. Um, we're having you know, Jeff, success. Uh, eventually, you're gonna have to say the name of the band and the name of the song. So one one of the bands that has <laughs> that has found themselves in this in this cornucopia of stuff is uh, a band who had a surprisingly long run called the Bloodhound Gang. Oh boy! The other thing that the Bloodhound Gang is is like a gag band. They're like a punny funny band. I don't know why a whole album can be sustained on punny funny sort of rap rock but they managed to do a couple of records where that was their thing they also do some dance music and some other stuff but the song that we're talking about today is probably the first song that really was popular here in the united states and still gets played on whatever your alternative station is uh, in your local metro area and that is a song called the bad touch well let's play the clip and uh see if this rings anybody's bells Touch you want it rough, you're out of bounds. I want you smothered, want you covered like my waffle house. Hash browns coming quicker than FedEx, never reaching apex. Just like Google Call Stock, you are inclined to make me rise an hour early, just like daylight savings time. Do it now. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Do it again now. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it now. like I spent a lot of time going to clubs in the 90s, and I remember this song. And I remember this song being really, really popular. Yeah. This kind of goes into that same category, for me anyway, as like Closer by Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> yeah, it's like and, the Kids Bob version of Closer. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, Buck Cherry's song there, Crazy Bitch or whatever, yep. where... It's, it's because the song is kind of like a little randy, a little dirty, is why people are like on it, you know? Yeah. It's They like singing sing about that. It's like, for me, I don't know. I stopped being impressed by swears in a song. Right. Like when we got HBO at the house when I was like 10, right? Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Animal by Wasp was a, a great song for me because I was a teenager but as time goes on, I don't know, like songs like this, this really doesn't do nothing for me. I'll admit that chorus is catchy as hell for the first four to five hundred times that you hear it within the song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, and I, I agree. After and that, it, gets, it wears on you. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, th- I think that in the, the pantheon of rap rock and as much as I hate putting those two words together in any way, shape or form. They hew much closer to the side of the spectrum where there's dance music. So this, if you go back and listen to this song, it's pretty much boots and hats and boots and hats and boots and hats. And that's the beat to the song, boots and hats and boots and hats. And the same thing with the single that followed this one that spells out F-U-C-K. And some of the other stuff that they've done too. It's the same, that it's just a little slower dance beat, which is great. Generally, I like dance music. This song reminds me of dance music that I like. You know what? There's another song that they did because law. I, I I spent an hour or so listening to some Bloodhound Gang today. Number four on their Spotify list is a song called Firewater Burn. 
Now, Firewater Burn is a very loose, I'm going to go out on a limb and call it a cover, even though it kind of isn't, uh, of a song called The Roof is on Fire by Rockmaster Scott, the Dynamic Three, <laughs> which this song is like a cryptid to me. It's like Sasquatch. Like, I knew this song existed because everybody knows the chorus there, which isn't even a chorus. It's like a, a, a refrain at the very end of the song. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. We don't need no water. Let the mother burn, burn, mother burn. Everybody knows that. But up until today, here in 2022, I had never officially heard this song. Right. Do you know the song? Do you know the original? Like, have you heard it? Which one? The, the We Don't Need No Water Let The original, yeah. Yeah, I've heard the original. The original, I quote your locker room buddies, that song slaps, okay? <laughs> yes. But our friends over here, the Bloodhound Gang, they did this, like, cover to make it sound as soulless and vanilla as possible. Hold on. I'm going to play back-to-back clips of oh, both. Oh, okay. Just so you can compare and contrast. Let's make some noise. Oh. Let's make some noise. Come on. The roof. The roof. The roof is on fire. We don't need no water. Let the mother burn. Burn, mother burn. Burn. The roof. The roof. Oh, that's evil, yeah, but you can call me Cookie. The roof. The roof. The roof is on fire. my god how do you how do these guys make any money seriously if you're listening now and you're a bloodhound gang fan defend yourself holy cow i I mean like again i can't say that i have an issue with them as a band because again i don't know their music that well i've only listened to this song i heard eight million thousand times on wfnx because they played it to the point where even i was like i'm gonna change the station now and put on something yeah like i said they used to play in the clubs a lot they're named for a segment that used to be on three to one contact, right? The Bloodhound Gang yeah. was like teenage detectives, and it's funny that like uh, remember the Bloodhound? It's like the member berries on South Park, right? Remember, remember, remember Bloodhound Gang? <laughs> and now we're old enough to say swears, and and but all of the songs that they that I've heard of them, including this one, it's like hanging around with like your kind of dumb older cousin who wasn't supervised a lot as in his tween <laughs> years and had access to Penthouse magazine and wants to just tell you over and over again about boobies. It's like, yeah, dude, yeah. Oh my God, that's the name of the album, dude. Right, yeah, the name exactly, of the album, yes. this song is on, it's called Hooray for Boobies. Hooray for it's boobies, like, what yes. are you, 12? Yeah, that that's definitely what they're going for, which is why this song became popular in in a lot of clubs because it's a song that like kind of big dumb guys are still like I can I can kind of dance to this like it's ironic it's funny but surely See? you've gotten laid by now the time you're listening to this yeah again never underestimate the power of testosterone uh, one of the things that, that dates the song and it certainly doesn't help the song live any longer is that it mentions a whole bunch of things that are now like slowly d- dissolving into the mists of time like Mr. Coffee that's not a brand anymore. Siskel and Ebert, those guys are both dead. They've been dead for years and years now. There's other stuff too, like you sank my battleship and tool time that's called out as a thing. Like, do you, if you have I to explain the I need you to the back reference. up two seconds, young man. Okay. 
because I just bought a Mr. Coffee. <laughs> Did you really? I didn't yes, even know that. that brand. I thought still. it was Black and Decker was had taken over what their brand was. Nope, nope. Wow. very much still a brand. So yeah, there's a lot else, of like, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of like super punny word wordplay in this too, which you may think that that's funny. That may be your sense of humor. At which point we can't be friends. But for me, after like thirty seconds of someone saying like you love it, just like Lyle, at that point I want to just shove you out of my car at sixty five miles an hour and hope <laughs> that you could roll for the trees. Finally, like the chorus, the whole chorus of the song, I guess, gets funnier as time goes on because the Discovery Channel doesn't show animals on it anymore. It's like people cutting down trees and fixing cars and welding engines to motorcycle frames. And that, you know, and that guy that I met at the Merlion show there. That guy, yeah, that's uh, George Sukalos, right? The ancient alien. George, guy. yeah. I don't know what they do on the Discovery Channel anymore. I'm not going to say it was aliens. I'm but not going to say <laughs> it was aliens. Let's customize this car. <laughs> All right, so uh, something that hasn't gone out of style, uh, like our friends the Bloodhound Gang, uh, actually, they broke up in 2015 for reasons I actually don't feel very comfortable uh, feel very comfortable talking about on the podcast. I'm not surprised. Uh, if anybody's interested, they can Google it, but when you find out, you're going to be like, oh, okay, that's understandable. Let's just say it was an international incident. <laughs> So at any rate, something that doesn't go out of style is an organ being played at a baseball game. Oh, bum, that's true. Bum, dum, 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 dum. So first baseball game to have an organ being played at it da, 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 was in 1941. Which baseball team was the first team to feature the organ? I am played at their baseball game. I am going to just randomly guess one of this handful of stadium names that I remember that were not sponsored by corporations in 1941. Uh, just, uh, no, what's well, the team? I don't know what. The, I know, I don't but know that, what the, that's that's what I, I have know to. What the attach, arena was. That's what I have to attach the team to. So, uh, I'm going to just say the Brooklyn Dodgers because why not? Why? Because you like being wrong. That's why. That's, there you go. It was the Chicago Cubs. Oh, that would have been my second guess, but. Well, they got to be first for something, I guess. I guess, I guess so. All right, but that is going to be the end of our show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Don't forget to tell all your friends about our podcast. Tell them it's like Shark Week, but for like more weeks and less sharks. <laughs>